0: In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, Paul writes, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church. And he's the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands, in everything, Certain passages in the Bible almost instantaneously lend themselves to misunderstanding. Like all passages in the Bible, we should carefully consider what it says, what it means, in its context, and then its instruction. In this chapter, chapter 5, Paul likens the church and the people in the church to obedient children in verses 1 through 21. Wives, obedient wives in verses 22 through 24. Obedient husbands in verses 25 through 33. And again, ladies, you don't have to be a mathematician to figure out that the husbands are going to get a lot more instruction than the wives The heat is going to be on you tonight, but the chair is going to get really hot next week. (laughs) The instruction comes on the heels of walking in the light in verses 8 and 9. And then again in verses 11 through 14. Seeking God's will and doing God's will in verses 10 through 17 taking every opportunity to do what's good in verses 15 and 16, refraining from getting drunk at the beginning of verse 18, being filled with the spirit at the end of verse 18, gratitude in verse 20, mutual submission in verse 21. And then it says, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And so in this very, very short passage, we're given the motive for submission in verse 22. We're given the method that, of submission in verse 23. And we're given the model for submission in verse 24. And so we begin with the motive for submission in verse 22. Look what it says. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord... And again, what does the Bible mean by submission? The word is the same word that's used in verse 21. Hupo, tasso." It is a military term which means to rank in order. And again, you don't have to be a Greek scholar, even though it's in the present middle participle. So it means to put in subjugation. And so here, submit carries with the idea of giving up or voluntary relinquishment of rights. And because it's in the middle voice, it carries with it an extreme idea of voluntary, willful, volitional, a willingness to give up your rights. We might even say, if you've ever been arrested, and I hope you haven't, but I've been arrested, and when you get arrested, they they want to know if you want to waive your rights. I don't want to waive my rights. I want to exercise my rights. But in this this passage, Paul is inviting wives to voluntarily waive their rights. And for many, these are fighting words. The moment you read this text, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, there's an immediate sense of, no. Husbands who are un. Able or unwilling, like I said, to memorize scripture, seem to find this one so easy to quote. And when some people talk of submission, there's this picture that they have in their mind: submission. And they go back to the first time they saw Star Wars, and or Prince, or that one episode where some of you remember, where Princess Leah is chained to Jabba the Hut in that kind of odd. Outfit, and there's Jabba with his worm-like alien disgusting body and they think no, no and no. And for good reason. Because some men have clubbed their wives over the head with this scripture and they've used it as a weapon to get their way rather than as a tool to promote God's will and God's way. And that's part of the challenge that I have to help you understand. Paul never intended this scripture to be used as a weapon to instill fear or to generate humiliation. Some people make the mistake and assume that these are Paul's words. That he was a misogynist from a bygone era in an outdated, male-dominated, mean-spirited culture. And nothing could be further from the truth. The danger is to interpret this passage with a chauvinistic or a feministic or some other viewpoint other than what The Bible is teaching and the passage is understood in the broad context of mutual submission in verse 21, specific submission in verse 22, and you'll remember that children are going to be asked to obey their parents in chapter 6, verse 1. Bond servants, or at least in our culture and society, employees are going to be asked to be obedient to their employers, Our concept of of submission must come from that which exists between Christ and the church. It was the Life Application Bible Commentary on this particular passage where he writes, Christ loves the church and she submits to him, unquote, subordinating our personal desires for the good of the loved one, submitting ourselves to Christ as Lord, That's a good definition. Submission is subordinating our personal desires for the good, not the harm, for the good of the one who is loved, submitting ourselves to Christ as Lord. And so wives submit, husbands love, children obey. But in all of those instances, whether wives are submitting, husbands are loving, children are obeying, the motive that has been given by the Bible is the Lord. We are motivated by our love for, commitment to, and willingness to serve the Lord. Contrary to chauvinist culture or feminist theology, God's arrangement of headship and leadership remain The best way to know God's will and to do God's will. I was in India right before Stuart Briscoe and Jill Briscoe. Jill Briscoe made this comment to a group of ladies that she was teaching. A man of quality is never threatened by a woman of equality. And she was exactly right. According to Paul, a wife demonstrates her submission to Christ by her submission to her husband. And again, contrary to popular culture, feminist philosophy, feminine theology, God's arrangement of leadership and leadership and headship is to ensure protection and harmony and security. And peace. Some women and men believe this scripture outdated or it's a cultural expression that has no place in contemporary society. But when they do, they miss the point of the passage and the meaning of the passage. Paul's point is, in the passage, is that God's plan for harmony and unity and peace begin in the home before it can be had in the church. And that's part of the point, but it's not the whole point. What's the critic's response? The critic's response is, why would you teach... Why would you promote something that has led to profound abuse and much suffering? Why promote and protect a system of male dominance that abuses women and subjects them to fear and control? This last week, <laughs> I can't believe I saw this, but there was in the news of this Italian lady running through the, uh, the St. Peter's square. She's naked from the belly button up. She attacks the nativity scene and grabs the the baby Jesus from the nativity scene and she shouts in Italian that God is a woman. And everybody there was convinced and they changed their mind. No, no, that's not what happened. That's usually not how Change takes place. Again, when they say, the critic says, why would you promote and protect a system of male dominance that abuses women and subjects them to fear and control? The charge itself is false. That's not what the Bible invites women to do or husbands to do. Women are not instructed to submit to husbands in abuse or crime. It isn't wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord, even if they ask you to do something illegal or immoral. That's not what's being asked. God's system was never intended to trap or abuse or humiliate women. God's system was to protect women and to provide for women. And Paul lists at least Two reasons. One is in verse 22, the other is in verse 23. Number one, women are to submit to their husbands, note what it says, the motive, as to the Lord. Sorry, husbands, this doesn't mean that they treat you as Lord. When it says as unto the Lord, it doesn't mean treat me like I'm Jesus, treat me like I'm God. That's not the meaning of the text. There's only one Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord, rather it means it is their duty, a duty with which they owe the Lord. Now, don't ignore the context. Again, in the earlier verse, Paul writes, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. There's nothing degrading and there's nothing dehumanizing about ordered equality, Unless you're not full of the Holy Spirit, and you're not full of joy, and you're not full of thanksgiving, and you're not full of humility. Remember the context. It's the entire chapter, and sometimes it's the entire book. When you're full of the Holy Spirit, when you're full of joy, when you're full of thanksgiving, when you're full of humility, husbands and wives and parents and children and employers and employees... Treat each other with respect and deference. Paul says women submit out of respect, not for their husband, oddly enough but out of respect for Jesus Christ. The second reason, which we're going to explain more fully in a moment, is found in verse 23. The husband is the head of the wife. This arrangement began in the Garden of Eden, in the creation of man and woman. Women are not in submission to their husband because of Adam's curse. It isn't because of some sort of generational curse brought on by Eve's disobedience. It isn't the the, the circumstances of women where where you go, well, it's Eve's fault. She messed it up for every woman in every generation. That's not what this text is saying. Wives are to submit to their husbands for the same reason that husbands are to submit to Christ and that children are to submit to their parents and slaves to their master. It's a part of God's order. And so now think about this, and I'm going to talk more about it. The method of submission. In verse 23, it says, for the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. The natural meaning of the word head is leader, ruler, authority. When you're the head of the FBI, you're the authority. The director of the FBI answers directly to the attorney general of the United States. The Attorney General of the United States reports directly to the President of the United States. And whether you like it or not, the President of the United States reports to the Constitution of the United States and the people of the United States. Is it possible that a President could abuse his power or her power? Is it possible a judicial system can abuse their power? Can police officers abuse their power? Can husbands abuse their power? Can parents abuse their power towards their children? Abuse isn't a sufficient argument to subordinate God's order. Now, I want you to think about this. Real spiritual leadership involves service and sacrifice. Some scholars parse this word, head, to mean source rather than authority. Again, the application Bible commentary has a, a great note. It says, quote, a wise and Christ-honoring husband will not take advantage of his leadership role, and a wise and Christ-honoring wife will not try to undermine her husband's leadership Either approach causes disunity and friction in the marriage. And a lot of people have tried to sort of circumvent that. I know that I did early on. The way that I do it is I go, look, I said to Mary, I'll make all of the, all of the critical decisions I'll make, and you make all of the ordinary decisions. We've never had to make a critical decision in our marriage. I said, look, I'm going to wear the pants in the family. And so every morning she tells me which pair to put on. (laughs) Now, if you want to have a happy marriage, you should understand that maybe your wife is better at picking out your clothes than you are. But here's the point. The wise husband still has to exercise leadership. And the wise wife has to willingly submit to her husband's leadership in Christ. Now clearly there's a problem when a husband's interests aren't Christ's interests. And some people, particularly women, might think, well, I know that I'm to, to submit to my husband, but he's supposed to submit to Christ, and I couldn't help but noticing that Jesus is way different from my husband. Jesus doesn't make the same kinds of bad decisions that my husband makes. We're going to get to that in just a moment. There is a problem when the wife's interests are not the interest of Christ. Submission is rarely a problem when both husband and wife have a strong and sensitive relationship with Christ They honor God and obey God and are filled with the Spirit and joy. Verse 22 provides both a rationale and an explanation for God's order. The explanation is rooted in two important concepts that Paul will give us. The first concept is creation and the second concept is redemption. The husband is the head of the wife. The head means more than a lump of empty space above the shoulders. It has to mean something else. It has to mean authority. Some have, like I said, translated this source, but that simply can't be the meaning in the context. A careful Greek scholar looked at this word, in 2,336 instances in ancient Greek culture, nowhere was the meaning ever given as origin or source. F.F. F. Bruce says, quote, but in context, the word head has the idea of authority attached to it after the analogy of Christ's headship over the church. Head has the same meaning in English like a department head or the head of a university. And so there is an element of authority. Paul reveals the concept of headship extends even to the Godhead. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 3 it says, But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. The head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. And since Paul reveals the concept of headship, even as it extends towards the Godhead, he writes in 1 Timothy 2.11, let a woman learn in silence with all submission, same word, in both of those passages of scripture, and here's part of the point, Paul goes back in time and space. And he makes a reference to Genesis chapter 2 and points out that in the beginning, woman was made after man and for man. He adds that man is born from woman, so both are dependent on one another. Paul's interpretation of Genesis chapter 2 isn't just a unilateral submission that results in a unilateral deferment, but he reminds even his readers that man is born from woman, so both are dependent on one another. He's trying to help people understand that there's a mutual accountability and dependability. No one can make an effective, defensible, believable argument for masculine superiority based on the scripture. My mom told me this. She said, when God made Adam, she said, he, he said, I can do better than this. There's an element of truth to that. But here's the point. Women are not intrinsically, ontologically, that means in the very nature of their being, intellectually inferior Women are not intrinsically, ontologically, intellectually, spiritually inferior to men. We don't argue the inferiority of Christ to the Father simply because Christ is subject to the Father. Now, our friends in the cults do. Our friends will argue that Christ is inferior to the Father because he's subject to the Father. But that isn't a biblical concept. And it certainly doesn't theologically represent what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that Jesus is God in every sense of the word. Jesus doesn't cease to be God because he's subject to the Father. Paul bases the biblical doctrine of submission on the reality of creation. That means God ordered the terms. And for this reason, it's permanent and universal in its application. Again, the critic will say, well, wait a minute. Time out, Gino Geraci. What about slavery? Slavery was abolished. Why can't we abolish this whole wives-submit-to-your-husband thing? The answer? Slavery wasn't based on God's divine order. God's divine order was never that human beings should own other human beings, that they should traffic in them or sell them. If that's the case, why not abolish submission to the military? Imagine you go into the military and you go, you know what, I don't think privates should have to submit to sergeants, and sergeants shouldn't have to submit to lieutenants, and lieutenants shouldn't have to submit to captains, and captains shouldn't have to submit. Go on up the chain. How effective of a military are you going to have if there's no submission? There is none. Or imagine there's no submission in the home. Imagine you say to your, your child, we're all equal here. How's that going to work out? Is there a good reason why the Bible says children obey your parents? Have you ever had a child who said, I wish the Bible said children disobey your parents. That way I wouldn't get into trouble so much. Some people would have you believe the family is a dehumanizing institution. Do you know what? Slavery is a dehumanizing institution. But again, we see in God's word and God's plan for God's family. And note what it says. Christ is the head of the church and the savior of the body. The first reason is given and the second reason is given. The first reason is established in creation. The second reason is established in redemption. And so, note what Paul does. Christ is the head of the church and the savior of the body. I actually want you to read this a little bit differently without abandoning the context or the meaning of the passage. This is Paul's way of saying, in effect, look at Jesus, Pause for just a moment. Have you ever had an argument with someone and you were sure you were right and you were sure that they were wrong and they invited you to look at Jesus, to look at Jesus and to ask the question, what would Jesus do or how would Jesus respond to this question? Again, I'm going to suggest to you this is in part what Paul is doing. He's saying, look at Jesus. Paul always looks at Jesus for the source of truth and the example of truth. Paul defines the headship of man in terms of creation, and then he relates it to Christ in terms of redemption. Jesus Christ is always the context for submission and Authority. This is going to prove important as we continue our study. Because if you begin to think, if Jesus is the context, for submission and authority, when we have difficult questions, we can begin to answer those questions. You'll recall that the headship of Christ over the church has already been established from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. Remember we already read, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ Christ. From whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. The reason why I bring that up is if Christ is the head over the church, is Jesus in authority and are we to submit to him? What do you think the answer is? Yes. And we all do that perfectly every time, right? No, we, we really don't. If we're honest. We know that that's what we're supposed to do, but we don't always do that. But Jesus deserves our not only respect and love, but he deserves it because of who he is and what he's done. It is from Jesus that the body derives its health and wellness. And so think about what Paul is doing. If the body of Christ derives its wholeness, its wellness, as we submit to Jesus as Lord, are the possibilities of us being a church of harmony and unity and purity much larger if we all look at Jesus and say, let's do what Jesus wants us to do. The answer is yes. Again, John Stott puts this really well. He says, quote, his headship expresses care rather than control. Resistibility rather than rule. It should be irresistibility. Irresistibility. This truth is endorsed by the surprising addition of the words and is himself the savior. The head of the body is the savior of the body. The characteristics of his headship is not so much lordship as saviorhood, although he's both. If the husband's headship of the wife resembles Christ of his church, then the wife's submission will resemble the church's submission. And this is part of the tragedy of what John Stott is saying. There's more truth to what he's saying than even he would like to admit. Because the truth is, yes, the wife's submission should resemble the church. And tragically, the church's submission is less than appropriate, less than perfect. And therein is the rub. John Stott writes, as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be subject in everything. And so there's the model for submission. We're going to talk about that in verse 24. Look what it says. Therefore, that means in light of what you have just read. Therefore, just as the church is is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands, not to other people's husbands. The, The Greek is very specific, idios. So let the wives be subject to their own husbands in everything. Now, again, ideally, the church is subject to Christ. This brings us the model for submission. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, and our model breaks down, not in Christ's willingness of love and humility and submission, but in our willingness to submit. How could anyone characterize Christ and the church's relationship as demeaning, Or dehumanizing. Pause for just a moment. Do you think that because the Bible invites you to submit to Christ as believers, that now you are placed in a dehumanizing position? No. Why? Because of who Jesus is. I suspect that one of the reasons why there is the thought that it is dehumanizing or demeaning is because things don't always work out the way that the Bible had hoped. For the Christian woman, submission is not unthinking obedience to his rule, but grateful acceptance of his care and love and protection, and provision. The relationship in its ideal form should be permeated, inundated, soaked in joy and gratitude and humility. All the things that we saw in a person who's filled with the Holy Spirit expressing the character of Christ, if a husband is filled with the Holy Spirit and expressing the character of Christ, ladies, how hard is it to submit? You pretend you're a Pentecostal church and you can talk to me. <laughs> Pretty easy is the right answer, fairly easy. Again, as John Stott puts it, quote, whenever the husband's headship mirrors the headship of Christ, then the wife's submission to the protection and provision of his love, far from detracting from her womanhood, positively enriches it. We husbands are to look to Jesus as the model for our leadership. So what does his leadership look like? it's marked by love. It's marked by selflessness. It's marked by sacrifice. Wives are to look to Jesus as the model for submission, and husbands are to look to Jesus as the model of love. By the way, if wives look at at Jesus as the model of submission and husbands look at Jesus as the model of love, what do you have? Harmony. Peace. Unity. So again, what does the submission of Jesus look like? Think carefully. Jesus looks to his father for guidance, for strength, For understanding. Does Jesus know. His father's will. Does he want to do his father's will. And is that going to be difficult. The perfect. Sinless. Savior. Is going to give his life for the sin of the world. Our wives Co providers, co protectors, co leaders with their husband. Well, in the same way that the church is a co provider and a co protector and a co leader. But quite frankly, it's the husband's responsibility to care for his wife and to provide for her. So here we have a difficult problem. Jesus leads, Jesus provides. Jesus cares for his church. True statement or false statement? That's a true statement. Sometimes husbands don't lead. Sometimes husbands don't provide. Sometimes husbands don't care or don't seem to be able to express it. Provide limited leadership, limited guidance, stingy in their care. So what's a wife to do? Just as the church is subject to Christ in all things, it says, so let wives be to their own husbands in everything. It's okay for you to ask this question. Does everything mean everything? My answer might surprise you. The answer is, well... Yes and no. Well, what do you mean? Yes, in everything that's consistent with the character of God and the word of God. No, in everything that doesn't include sinful subjugation that requires you to renounce God or compromise your commitment to Christ. Do wives have to submit to their husbands in wickedness? Evil. Evil. Crimes. Let's just be honest here for a second. Reading the Bible in its context and in, in, in the whole, does the Bible leave you with the impression that God is going to ask Christ to do something unlawful, criminal, wicked, or weird? Is it possible That a government could ask its citizens to do something unlawful or wicked or weird? Yeah. Is it possible that husbands could ask their wives to do something wicked or weird? Yeah. Is it even possible that self-proclaimed church leaders could ask congregants to do something wicked or weird? Can you imagine we're celebrating? um, Who's celebrating? We're mourning that I think it was some 25 years ago when Jim Jones ordered 800 plus people in Guyana to, to drink poison Kool-Aid and kill themselves. Or was it David Koresh and his weirdness and wickedness in Waco? If a church leader asks you to do something sinful, do you submit to that? No. So this is part of the p- point. Everything can't mean an invitation to sin. Everything can't mean that this is the husband's charter for abuse or sin or scandal. Does this mean that women submit to abuse, cruelty or violence? It can't mean that because in Ephesians 4:32 it says be kind to one another tender hearted forgiving one another in the fear of God Jesus gives us a model of godliness spirit directed living joy peace sacrifice service and so husbands parents masters rulers governors do not have absolute authority. When people misuse or abuse their God-given authority, our responsibility is to resist them. You know why? Because the Bible says so. We're to resist what's evil, and we're to hold on to what's good. Now, having said all of that, under most lawful circumstances, were to obey the authorities? What would prompt us to disobey when the instruction invites us to violate the word of God or the character of God? Remember, authority doesn't mean tyranny. Paul isn't giving a charter for abuse. Let me spell it out for you. If someone asks you to commit crimes or fail to obey God, you have a responsibility to obey God. If a person commands you to do what God forbids or forbids you to do what God commands, then you do not have a duty to submit. But you can conscientiously refuse to submit, to refuse evil, to resist evil. But then you know what you have to do? Accept the consequences of obedience to the lordship of Jesus Christ. I wish I could say to you that the context and the consequences of obedience to Jesus always turns out well. But it doesn't always turn out well. In 1 Peter chapter 3, at the beginning of the chapter, it says, wives likewise be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. And then it basically says... About or, um, adorning yourself. But it goes on and it says something disturbing in verse 13. And who is he who will harm you in 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 13? Who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? The answer is he could. If I do what's right, he could hurt me. If I don't do what the government says, they can imprison me. If I don't do what the dictator or the tyrant commands me to do, I could go to jail. I could lose my job. I could lose this church. I could lose the ministry. I could lose, lose, lose. And then it says in verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you're blessed. Question. If you've ever suffered for righteousness sake, did you feel blessed? Probably not. Have you ever met a woman who's been hit by her husband? Do you think she feels blessed? Or who beats her with a stick? Or abuses her in a number of other different ways? Do you think she feels blessed? I'm going to suggest to you that she doesn't feel blessed. But according to the Bible, it says that she is blessed because she's suffering for righteousness' sake. Now, let's be clear here. I am not endorsing in any way, shape, or form the abuse of people. If husbands in this church decide to physically abuse their wives, my instruction to the wife is, call the police, have him arrested. I'll come and pray with him while he's in jail. But if you want to abuse your wife, then you have to be willing to accept the consequences. Can God abuse his authority? No. Can Jesus abuse his authority? No. Can the church abuse its authority? Unfortunately, yes. Can a husband abuse his authority? Can parents abuse their authority? Can governments abuse their authority? Again, most circumstances, we are to obey authorities. Some will disagree with me. Some will say if a woman is totally submissive to God, God won't hold her responsible for her sin. If her sin comes as a result of obeying her husband. But that seems to me to be pretty sketchy theology. It seems to me. That if you know that something is wrong. That you have a responsibility to do what's right. And to not do what's wrong. So what is submission that makes sense? You have the proper motive. You exercise the proper method. You embrace the proper model. The singular theme for all of those is Jesus. So here's what Paul invites us. Wives, submit to your husbands because you love Jesus. The proper method is we submit for Christ's sake. He's our model. He submits to his father. He submits to local authorities. He submits to the courts. He submits to the judicial ruling of Pontius Pilate. Could Jesus have said, "What? tell me again, what did you order? Well, I found you not guilty of the crimes, and then I'm ordering you to be executed. And now think about that for just a minute. Have you ever been to a court where the judge puts the hammer down and he goes, I find the defendant not guilty? And I sentence him to death. We, we laugh at the absurdity of that. But that's exactly what happened to Jesus, isn't it? The judge found him not guilty and then sentenced him to death. Could Jesus have said, you know what? I'm going to turn you into a tortilla. And I'm going to turn everybody else into fajitas. And I'm going to have the angels come from heaven and have a Hispanic feast. But he doesn't do that. Jesus submits. So, just quickly, a couple of things. Wives, submit to your husbands for all the right reasons. God ordained it in creation and modeled it in redemption. To what extent do you submit? To the extent that human obedience would be disobedience to God's authority. In other words, your obedience begins and ends where God clearly says, you can't do that. Peter was told by the Sanhedrin, don't preach in the name of Jesus. Do you remember Peter's response? You decide what's better for me to obey God Or to obey men. And you'll recall that he was incarcerated because he chose to disobey the law. You'll notice that Peter doesn't try to break out. An angel supernaturally springs him from the joint. My dad loved that story. Again, we obey God. This is the exception The New Testament rule is submission to God-given authority. Number two. How can I be sure my husband has God-given authority? Reread verse 22. Wives, submit to your husband. If he is your husband. All women are not required to submit to all men. Number three. Submission's greatest enemy is self. If you've ever struggled in this area or know someone who's struggling in this area, think about it. When a husband or a wife experience conflict, it may be that one believes he or she has superior intelligence or superior insight. And all of that well may be true. Submission's greatest ally is surrender. Pride assumes that surrender will damage our authority or our ability, but that is simply not true. And the biggest test of all is if God has ever asked you to do something and you've said no, and you've said no, and you've said no, and the Lord said, I I would like you to do this. And you go, no. And the Lord says, Have it your way. And then you have to accept the consequences of refusing to submit. And guess what? Sometimes there are consequences. Women have a sinful inclination to usurp man's authority. And man has a sinful inclination to usurp the authority of Christ. Question parents. Do children have a sinful inclination to usurp the authority of their parents? You don't have to be a theologian to figure that out. And that's the rub. That in spite of the sinful inclinations, we're still supposed to submit. And number five, almost all marital conflict would disappear if husbands and wives did this simple thing. They pray together. They read their Bible together. They encourage one another They study and apply the Bible to just everyday life, harmony, peace, protection, because God's plan isn't for the exaltation of man or the humiliation and the suppression of women or the subjugation of children. All of these things are oriented to produce harmony in the home. True submission comes from a heart filled with joy and thanksgiving in the spirit. And some women come close, but they never quite submit to their husband. And I'm going to suggest to you, it's because they never quite surrender to Christ. Ladies are rightfully afraid that they're going to be dashed to pieces Wives should understand and support their husbands, and husbands should understand and support their wife. The Bible says husbands live with them and understand the way that they are. I was reading a book by Linda Dillow, and she gives four fears that women state in this matter. Number one, she says she is afraid of what he might do or ask her to do. Yet a woman only needs to go as far as Jesus insists and never further. Does that make sense? A woman only has to go as far as Jesus would go. And never further than what Jesus would do. Number two, she's afraid he will fail. There's ladies out there who want to shout amen, but they're just they're, they're choking it down. They're saying, I'm not, I, I want to say it, but I'm not going to. She's afraid he will fail. Well, that's possible. Ladies, does God allow husbands to fail? Does God sometimes allow husbands and wives and children to fail? Does God do it because He hopes that there'll be failures? Or does He allow failure as a mechanism to grow up and to mature and to sometimes become more like Jesus? Number three, she's afraid he's not responsible. (laughs) I can hear the shout of amen again. He's not responsible. Well, a wife who submits to her husband runs this terrible risk. You're exactly right, ladies. He might do something irresponsible. And I know it's hard for you to hear it now, but you should have known this before you married him. Did anyone ever have a conversation with you? Go, is he going to act responsibly or is he ever going to be irresponsible? And you said, dad, mom. Yeah, he could be irresponsible. Yet a husband who acts irresponsibly. It's been my experience that when a woman supports her husband, even in his failure, God makes a provision And number four, and this one surprised me. I was shocked when I read it. She's afraid of God's will. She's afraid of what he might say or do to her. She's afraid he'll fail. She's afraid he's not going to be responsible. She's afraid of God's will. What does that mean? A wife may agree with the first three fears, yet there's this fear but God will allow the situation to go on so long or cause more pain or more loss than she can bear. Question. Does God allow pain and trial and suffering and hardship and loss? My answer would be, God, Sent Jesus here for you. It involved pain, trial, suffering, hardship, loss. I think the way I would answer your question is this no one is more grieved with our sin than God. Yet God allows certain things for purposes that I don't always understand. Surrender, submission are linked to the presence of the Holy Spirit and the absence of self. George Mueller was a man of faith in surrender and submission. He established orphanages all over England and he was asked this remarkable question. He was said, somebody asked him, how did you do it? what was the secret of your service? He replied, there was a day when I died, utterly died. And as he spoke, he bent lower and lower and lower to the floor. He said, died to George Mueller, died to his opinions, died to his preferences, died to his taste, died to his will, died to the world, its approval or censure, which means disapproval, died to the approval or blame of my brethren and friends. And since then, I have studied only to show myself approved unto God. What are the benefits of this Of submission. Relief. You might find that hard to believe. When you release the area of leadership back to your husband, you experience this huge weight off your shoulders and you can say with confidence, he's in God's hands. The choices and the decisions that he makes, that's in God's hands. But the second Benefit might surprise you. The second benefit is change. You see, ladies, your husband's chance for change greatly increases the moment you're willing to submit to the Lord. What's the greatest barrier to a wife's submission? A disobedient husband. Next week, I'm going to Put the husbands in the hot seat, and it's going to burn. But Linda Dillow offers this great insight. She says that when a wife submits to her husband, really submits to her husband, not half-hearted, reluctance, but because of God's created order and because of the redemption of Jesus, because of the love of Jesus, because of the mercy of Jesus, because of grace, because of forgiveness, because of the peace of Jesus, these become the most powerful motives to change. In other words, your submission is the greatest And most effective tool that you possess to change your husband. This is why the Bible says what it says. And this is why I have to say what it says. Wives, make sure your husbands come next week. Lord, we thank you, we praise you, we glorify you. Lord, we know that ordered submission is something that you ordered to ensure humility, to ensure harmony, to ensure peace, to make sure that we live in an atmosphere of grace and mercy, of forgiveness and love. Lord, we know that there will be no harmony in the church unless there's harmony in the home. And so, Lord, I want to take this time just for a moment and pray for our marriages. Lord, I want to pray for husbands and wives, and I want to pray for their children, and I want to pray for their families. Lord, I so much want husbands to love their wives, and I so want wives to submit to their husbands. Not to submit to abuse but to submit to an atmosphere where harmony and peace and grace and mercy could become known and experienced. Lord, we so much want to raise our children in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. Lord, we want our children to obey us, not because we're always smart or because we always make the right decision, but because we know that humility and submission are things that are difficult for us. And so, Lord, again, we pray for your grace. We pray for your mercy. We pray for your love. Lord, we pray that we with sensitivity and compassion would be generous with each other as we try to do what's right, and sometimes we don't, that we would be gracious and kind, that we would remember the scripture that precedes this one, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another because Jesus has forgiven us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.